0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws.
1: And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height,
0: And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff.
1: Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Alignment. Recent TV shows. And Elias Ashmole. gliders, marshmallows, spandex.
0: That's the worst shopping list I've ever heard. I think you mean the best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas Games at this point in the show.
1: Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school.
0: Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element.
1: Like trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider.
0: Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, Once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one.
1: The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose.
0: Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure.
1: That evil genius in training who's chosen wins the round. That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider. Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free. That's 52 cards
0: perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico.
1: And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping too.
0: Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.?
1: Not at all. That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks, too.
0: Now, just like a university
1: essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you. In Mad Scientist University, everyone gets an insane assignment.
0: Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen.
1: And then the TA picks a winner.
0: And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free.
1: Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts?
0: If you're playing Mad Scientist
1: University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin dash MSU. That's
0: atlas-games.com slash Ken and Robin dash M like Mike, S like sugar, U like union.
1: Or follow the link in the show notes.
0: Yeah, that's the way to do it.
1: The clatter of dice, the crunch of Doritos, the sight of Peter Frampton gazing beneficently at us, indicating his lawful goodness, tell us that we've entered an alignment-conscious portion of the gaming hut. And Robin, what do we think about alignment now, uh, given that we have uh, previously explored the sort of crazy side corner of the question. Are we taking it on head-on now?
0: Yeah, we talked about alignment in terms of languages a few episodes back, So, I, and uh, offhandedly I said, hey, I have a, a problem with alignment. So uh, <laughs> my thesis about alignment is that it is uh, something that we only put up with because of its legacy sensation that it causes in people that they associate it with being uh, playing D&D when they were young, and it seems so hard-coded into the D&D experience. And there are some benefits to it in that a game that is mostly about beating people up and taking their stuff, it creates an easy shortcut to deciding whether those guys over there are the ones that you should beat up and take their stuff, or the people who you should go and talk to in order to find other guys to go and beat up and take their stuff but that the particular implementation of alignment, particularly the uh, nine, I was saying 10 in the last episode, but it's it's, of course, it's like the Hollywood squares. There's nine of them that there are a bunch of dysfunctional elements in it, that if we cast our minds back to our um, youthful D and D days, assuming we had them, we can remember all sorts of uh, things that made play more complicated, not easier because of alignment. And, Uh, One of those things, for example, is that inevitably you start arguing with your friends over, well, uh, orcs grow up to be chaotic evil. Is it okay to kill these orc babies? And perhaps that's uh, not a productive path to uh, go down. And just the notion that you can, in certain versions of D&D, you can cast a spell and just tell whether a uh, figure is evil or not. Uh, And uh, it all depends on the interpretation. There's certainly versions of it where only, you know, obvious monsters or uh, artifacts or auras and stuff are inherently evil. And just the weird, complicated interaction of, you know, chaotic neutral. What's, what is chaotic neutral anyway? That there's so many elements to it that kind of impede both uh, play at the table and the idea of uh, characterization, because if you look at any uh, fictional source material, uh, let alone the uh the real world there might be people who talk about evil or evil being a physical force but the idea that uh everybody in the world can be typed according to their uh one of nine clear-cut moral pathways is something that is uh incompatible with simulating almost anything so uh basically that's that's my uh beginning case for being an alignment skeptic uh ken are you uh having been sort of uh, more steeped in Call of Cthulhu than D&D, are you uh, also consider alignment to be a, a not-the-tool-for-the-job, or am I uh, wrong?
1: I think alignment is... All, I mean, it's all right if what if uh, if it is what you use it for, um, because obviously you can see it as the first primitive attempts at what would eventually become, say, the passions mechanic for a Pendragon or, or the drive mechanic in Trail of Cthulhu. So I think that there are... There's certainly I wouldn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, the problem with our murder-hoboing game is that there was too much moral restraint. I, I think that <laughs> we need to throw that out and see what happens. I think that if you're going to, you need to present it then with something like the passion system from Pendragon, something where your character does have a plausible reason to take that drink or not take that drink, to kill that guy or not kill that guy, as opposed to the whim of the player, because part of the Uh, entire corpus of fantasy literature and, uh, pre-fantasy literature like the Arthurian lore that D&D itself draws on is this notion of existing in a world of strong moral choices and that those moral choices carry weight in the universe, whether it's uh, Frodo um, uh, not wearing the uh, ring when it could save him or whether it's um, uh, law versus chaos in the world of Elric. And so I think that we have to look at the alignment not necessarily as a crummy thing that's stupid for stupids. We have to look at it and say, what problems is it solving? What? aspects of the genre is that emulating. Is it an okay enough tool that we don't need to bother changing it, or do we want to swap it out for a different tool that uh, might fit our precise purposes in the game better? But certainly if all we're wanting to do is clomp around the Forgotten Realms, whacking gnolls on the head and taking their stuff, I don't see anything particularly wrong with Alignment, because it provides you, as you say, with the very handy guideline of paladins can only whack this subset of people on the head, and that's an important piece of information when you're a combat monster who can lay on hands.
0: Yeah, I don't think there's a lot to be... Uh... I think in order to fix alignment, you would need a time machine. Just because uh, people—it seems so central now to D and D. When I think probably it was something that was kind of uh, you know offhandedly added in an afternoon without a big think about what its implications would be. So if we were to go back in time and uh, strip down alignment to its functional core, I would definitely say that uh, the world. Uh, would either be divided between uh, law and chaos, or I think more fruitfully between uh, evil and good, uh, because that gives you your sort of uh, epic fantasy, clear moral uh, lines, but that it wouldn't be something that you could define about every single person, and it's what you do, not uh, something inherent in your identity that defines who you are, and that uh, indeed uh, replacing that with some sort of uh, you know, checklist of different uh, ethos, sort of like, I guess, the drive system that explains why it is that you are uh, going and getting into adventures and explains uh, what it is that you think is beyond the pale that you won't do and hopefully set those up so that they're uh, within uh, player character groups are complementary rather than at odds because there's already enough reason, especially for young players to get involved in party conflicts. You don't need... A mechanism that encourages that by having the you know the one guy in every party who wants to play the evil guy. It's uh, less of an obvious leap to that moment if you uh, make sure that all of, that there is no ethos presented. I'm thinking is going to steal stuff from the rest of the party in the night, or I'm the backstabber. That they're all uh, positive things that explain uh, what it is that um, makes you do things and why are you a sympathetic character
1: yeah what what is your you know inherent virtue and ask that about every character um I, there's sort of a uh, there's pieces of that in the i forget which vampire uh rule set it is but where they have like the the road of humanity or whatever it is and the more inhuman things you do the more your beast uh takes you over and the harder it is to avoid frenzying when you don't want to um and it's a pretty you know simple 1 to 10 list, and if you're all the way down at 1, you're in a bad way, but if you're up at 10, you're pretty great. Uh, but that gave a lot of flavor to play for Vampire, I assume, because they kept doing it. Um And I think maybe that's the way to go, and you maybe, instead of having one 1 to 10, you could maybe emulate uh Pendragon, and you have one set of Barbarian 1 to 10s, and one set of Knight 1 to 10s, and maybe one set of Elf 1 to 10s. And then it's like, well, which of these codes do I live by? And that becomes kind of a question that you can answer, especially for your Aragorn-type character, who on the one hand wants to just run off and, and be a, a Dunedain half-elf guy in the forest, but on the other hand, he also knows that he's a human king and has to live by the rules of chivalry.
0: And I'd also want to specify, you know, sort of decouple that from other mechanics, because uh, that if you, uh, you can sort of specify that, you know, extreme supernatural good might be something you can detect and sense, and likewise with the, you know, that there's enough fantasy literature where uh, evil t- t- is not just an abstraction but takes on a sort of a physical force or quality, and that you could maybe detect those. But for the um, individuals, you wouldn't get, uh, you know, a plus one. Uh, versus chaos or anything like that. And that the ethos would not be something that in the world to the characters is perceptible, that it's an abstract way of describing the world. So you wouldn't bump into somebody and be able to perform a spell and see what his uh, ethos is, because that's just really weird and unlike life and unlike fiction.
1: Yeah. I, I, I kind of, uh, you know, I I began your sentence thinking, yeah, you're right, we should dump detect alignment, we should definitely dump things like helm of alignment control or whatever, and I still think the latter, but there's enough cases in the story where you have your your Loki or your other concealed bad guy who's up to badness that I think that it might be important to, e- at the very least, allow one character type to be able to see through those sorts of disguises and say, no, I don't care. Uh we shouldn't trust him. He he looks like a good guy, but uh my spidey sense is tingling, my my alignment sense is tingling, and I think he's in league with chaos or he's in league with evil because he's actually and again, you wouldn't do it just with like the orcs, but you'd do it with, you know, maybe the orcs necromancer or someone who's actually tapped in to fundamental evil or fundamental chaos.
0: Right. And you do, but you don't necessarily have to posit fundamental alignments in order to have a lie detection spell mm-hmm. uh, which has its own set of uh, problems, problems that has to be handled in a <laughs> particular way but the, the sort of spidey sense that you can get a bad feeling about somebody right you can have an ability called intuitive mm-hmm. or you know a uh you can do a prophecy you know sense uh you, you can still have sense motive yeah. right and that can give you uh, something that doesn't imply that the whole uh, universe has this sort of moral qualities caked into it but again that it's it's not that Loki is evil, but that Loki is doing a deceptive or untrustworthy or sinister thing, and that it's his uh, actions that you can read and interpret magically, rather than something uh, innate about him that allows you to basically go, oh, evil, kill him.
1: Yeah. Although, again, if someone's uh, in, in this fantasy world, if they're a necromancer, if they've you know made a pact with a demon lord... That shows up in their soul. And in theory, you should be able to detect that, right? Uh, if you're a good enough cleric or you're a high enough level paladin, um, you should be able to say, nope, that, that guy's a villain of deepest die and we have to go after him. I don't think that, uh, like you say, you, you, you can't necessarily do that on everybody and you don't know who's, uh, allegiant to whom. But I think once you've actually taken part in a magical connection of yourself with true evil, true good, true chaos, you have, some sort of an effect on the world. That's the whole point of having it in a fantasy world, right?
0: I, I guess I just find it more flavorful, too, instead of saying, I detect whether this guy is evil or not, is I'm going to detect what his style of magic is. Yeah. Oh, it's necromancy, or it's, uh, you know, it's uh, goetic rituals. Mm-hmm. And so that gives you the same information, but it gives it to you in sort of a less shorthanded way that... uh then allows you to have a, a range of possible responses to it because you know that nine out of ten times the necromancer is up to no good. But what if he's uh, you know raised all of these dead to uh, protect the village from from the orcs and he's going to unraise them at the end? Uh, what if he's the you know the uh, the Chinese sorcerer who gathers up all the hopping vampires and needs to be able to control them so that there's a little bit more uh, sort of uh, interaction with not just Uh, what is he on an abstract moral plane, but what has this character actually done? And that you might have something that measures somebody's uh, actions or attitude, uh, but if it's not as abstract, I think it feels uh, a bit more dimensional and, again, a bit uh, less peculiar.
1: Or you can have a number of uh, possibilities where you you know that if you've committed a murder and you haven't gone to the cleric, temple that the the blood of the murdered man clings to your hands and someone can see that on you and you being a murder hobo are like well that was a business murder that doesn't that doesn't <laughs> yeah. really count so you shouldn't be thinking we're evil we just haven't gotten ourselves you know right with the Lord again um, but you see that on someone else's hands and you're like, okay, that's the guy in the in the tavern I need to watch out for because he's a murdering tavernier guy, not a regular taverner guy.
0: Yeah, I guess I like this idea because in fiction, the watchword is the characters are not what they profess about themselves, but they are characters' action. They are what you do in the course of the story. So if alignment could be uh fitted rather than you decide at the beginning of the game what your alignment is and then you try to adhere to that and in some versions of D and D, the gm punishes you when you fail that rather the gm just sort of has a sense of what it is that you've done and what your most important deeds are and that the uh the clerics of the world can sort of get an overall sense of what it is that you've done and whether there is uh whether there's Metaphorical blood on your hands, or uh, whether you've done uh, so much good for other people that overall you're a a force for uh, for the positive, and then that makes it more about what choices the players make in play rather than trying to fill uh, an abstraction. Some of them clearer than others. Uh, You know the difference between. Uh, lawful evil and chaotic evil and chaotic and, and neutral evil are uh, all kind of really difficult <laughs> to sort out. <laughs>
1: very, very, um, uh, very casuistic. I think.
0: Yes. And part of that comes down to the, you know, the complicating impulse of overlaying two different things, the good versus evil mm-hmm. system that you get in Tolkien and a lot of other, uh, high fantasy with the, uh, sort of, uh, weirdo, uh, revisionist, uh, psychedelic Michael Moorcock law versus chaos thing. And instead of taking one or the other, you know, squishing them together, I think compounds the uh, problems. Uh, But anyway, the one thing that we don't want to be is chaotic prolix. So I think it's time to uh, move on to our next segment.
1: of the orthicon tube, the click of the remote control, and the boop-boop of TiVo tell us we have entered the television hut. And here in the television hut, Robin and I lean back in our fictive recliners and opine upon the TV shows of the day. Robin, I believe that you have some to start with, so why don't you start us with them?
0: So my, before we get to sort of the more genre-like programs that people I think most want to hear are uh, a opinions on. uh, I would say that my favorite new show this year was definitely Better Call Saul, uh, which follows the prequel adventures and story arc of the uh, Bob Odenkirk character uh, Saul Goodman, which if you know from the uh, Breaking Bad is not his real name. Uh, And it sort of gives you uh, his, his journey from a kind of a his dramatic polls are uh, con man or good lawyer, and you see the development of those two different sides uh, throughout the first season. But it's just, I think, the best overall written season of TV that I've seen in a long way in a really classical sense. And almost every single scene is a great uh, two-hander with sort of crackling dialogue and the... uh Petitions and grants of the different characters are very clear, and the uh, uh, dialogue is really uh, pared down and uh, uh, really sings. You also get the uh, prequel story of Mike Ehrmantraut, another character who shows up in Breaking Bad. And I say this as someone who has stalled out twice in Breaking Bad, and it's only partway through it. Uh, and uh, I gave up on it the first time because the uh, way that the wife character, Skylar, was portrayed, that not only is she sort of the drag wife character, but that for episode after episode after episode, she's just hitting the same emotional notes. And I got back into uh, Breaking Bad because it's on Netflix because of Better Call Saul. and uh, But Better Call Saul, I think, if you compare the writing on the two shows, Uh, Breaking Bad is uh, clearly a brilliant groundbreaking show, but uh, Better Call Saul is uh, even better. And the performances of Bob Odenkirk and Michael McKean are a particular standout. Is there a new show this year that you particularly uh, love?
1: Uh, Not outside our genre universe. Um, My uh, television watching has been somewhat uh, constrained by the uh existence of the Dracula dossier getting the
0: Annoying requirement of doing work.
1: Yes. Uh so uh I have not actually uh picked up I've I've watched like give you know an individual episode of I zombie, which turned out not to be worth Rob Thomas's time and so obviously not worth mine. Um I've looked at uh a couple of other shows um that seemed like they might show some promise there well, was a... Let's talk
0: a bit about iZombie because I've yeah, watched okay. a few episodes and I don't think I'm going to continue with it either. And I think it kind of shows the uh, challenge that genre shows are now facing as we move more and more toward a serialized model and away from the procedural standalone case of the week style show. Uh, there are a bunch of other... Shows that are coming out that still try to follow the the same and and still a very popular model. If you look at the you know numbers of CSIs and NTSBs and whatever else is the, all the mm-hmm. things with the SVUs with the acronyms all over network television, but that uh, a lot of shows are uh, you know try to do the X Files thing of mixing in the case of the week with a little bit of serialized development, and that's uh, not seeming uh, so fresh anymore, or makes the show. Uh, Seen kind of uh, uneven or that it's just kind of marking time and I think that's very clearly the problem with iZombie is that the uh, case of the week is just clearly kind of filler to fill out the season while they follow the storyline that they're uh, interested in and you can see that in other uh, genre shows as well. Gotham is another example of something where the serialized story that the producers want to uh, tell is kind of at odds with the Uh, Case of the Week procedural that they clearly sold to the network.
1: Well, I mean, that's one of the I mean, that's why Veronica Mars is so great is because it did the procedural it nailed the procedural. It actually usually nailed two procedural episodes per episode and then also nailed the arc. And just because something is hard does not mean I think that it's a a you know, artistic failure in the sense that we have to abandon that, that format. I think that, you know, just like most procedural shows are terrible. Uh, most, uh, you know, drama shows are over uh, under plotted and overwritten basically. So yeah, it's,
0: it's not something that you shouldn't do, but that you need to be cognizant of the fact that if yeah. you have iconic characters, and we've mm-hmm. talked about the iconic character before, which is built for a serialized model and a, or sorry, a, a procedural episodic model. And, you're then trying to weave that into a, a an ongoing arc. It's not that that's something that shouldn't be done, as you point out. It's something that's very satisfying uh, when done well. But that I think, uh, in order to do it well, you have to pay more attention to the very difficult task of writing compelling cases of the week than mm-hmm. a lot of uh, writing teams. Uh, seem capable of doing
1: yeah again and that's why i was so disappointed with i zombie is because rob thomas had proven that he was capable of doing it but in this particular case it seemed you know i thought the kind of both halves of the and again i didn't even give it i think three episodes um both halves of it seemed sort of light and uh and unworthy really of of you know, like I said, unworthy of Rob Thomas. So obviously, unworthy of me watching Rob Thomas. Um, I will, I will stick with, uh, you know, watching Veronica Mars over again if I need to until he, you know, comes back from that and gives us another great show, which I'm sure he can.
0: Now, when we were kids, the whole idea of there being a superhero TV show, uh, was exciting enough in itself, even though he watched it every week and there were never any supervillains. But now there's so many superhero TV shows that you can't even keep up with all the DC ones. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> so uh, as I mentioned, I chose to watch uh, Gotham, which is un- uneven at uh, at best, but there are certain kind of breakout characters and performances. Uh, uh, Robin Lord Taylor as a Penguin in particular are enough to uh, keep you coming back and has a great uh, cast and some well-realized versions of some of those uh, classic characters. Um, but I understand that the The one to have chosen was uh, Flash, and I didn't choose that one because I'm not a... Was never a huge Flash fan, even as a kid, but you've been watching that.
1: I have. Uh, I was a huge Flash fan as a kid. Flash, uh, I was one of the things that, that sort of defined the DC, uh, Silver Age for me when I, for everyone really, but I was very much there, sort of, you know, on board for the, the last half of the Silver Age and all the reprints of the first half that the last half brought you. Uh, I was a huge Flash fan. I actually bought Flash comics back when, you know, I was a kid and buying comics. Uh, meant you couldn't buy other things... so I was a huge Flash fan, and the great thing about the Flash is that the guys who are making it have really leaned into it. They are they are completely willing to make a superhero TV show. They like the the property that they're that they're making a show based on. They are having fun with it, and because they've given themselves the permission to be the the thematic contrast to Arrow, which is of course the uh, show that you make when someone says you aren't allowed to make a Batman show, and they say, "I'll bet we're not allowed to make a Batman show," and they make. Green Arrow only—he's Batman, which is great. But the Flash is the very much the Silver Age half of that sort of Iron Age uh, Green Arrow. It is—you've got all of the, the the crazy superheroes. You've got um, a character who is uh, giving them all ridiculous code names that are, of course, their actual superhero names from the from the comics from the '60s comics. Um, they've done a terrific job landing a lot of the casting. I am. I am being won over slowly by Grant Gustin as Barry Allen. I thought that he was not a strong enough actor to play Barry, but obviously, uh, Tom Cavanaugh is, uh, really bringing it as Harrison Wells, who I'm, uh, hopefully not spoiling anything when I say that he has a secret that, uh, implies that he is perhaps the reverse of who you think he is. <laughs> um, uh, they've, uh, I am, I, I think a lot of people don't like Candace Patton as Iris Allen, but I think that, or Iris West rather, I think that she's, does a pretty good job. She's not super well written, but people haven't been able to write Iris Allen or Iris West very well for a good long time. So I don't think that that's anything new. Um, uh, the, uh, the guy playing, of course, the flash's dad in prison is John Wesley ship who played the flash in the old, uh, eighties show or nineties show, whenever that was. Uh, so that's just great that they're doing that. Um, uh, uh, flashback, as it were. And they brought and
0: back Mark Hamill as the villain from that show and another bit of fan service. They
1: brought back Mark Halle- Hamill as the original trickster who is angry at the new trickster, which was great. They've also brought Amanda Pays back from the original uh, Flash show to play the same character that she played in the original Flash show, but now she's a different scientist, um, which is just. The kind of nonsense that you, they actually did during the Silver Age, where they would just grab characters out of the Golden Age and drop them in, and you know expect you to keep up and ignore the fact that you couldn't. But they've done a really good job casting the villains. Uh, the um, uh, obviously people are over the moon about uh, Captain Cold, who is played by that guy from I think what was the name of the of the Prison Break was the name of the show. Wentworth, Wentworth Miller plays him, and then apparently they brought his sidekick from Prison Break out to play Heat Wave, which is great fun. They've done, you know, Clancy Brown is playing General Island. So it's
0: not just Flash fan service, it's Prison Break fan service.
1: It's, it's also Prison Break fan service, which is odd. But I think that they haven't actually uh, done a, a very bad job of casting any of the, of the supervillains, which is weird, given that a lot of it is very much Villain of the Week, and they've presented them in sort of that weird televised version of the superhero continuity where... It's just barely clinging on by two fingers to plausibility. It was sort of the ultimates, I guess, way of of doing it if there were ultimates in DC. Um, and they've got, of course, uh, the great Victor Garber as, uh, Raymond Stein, uh, as Dr. Stein, the, uh, guy that is half of Firestorm. And, uh, he's just terrific. Uh, again, much like how Arrow had the sort of, uh brass to bring Brandon Ralph on and make him a C level character uh Ray Palmer uh the Flash has done the same thing with Victor Garber who in you know a show that was less confident would sort of be taking over the show but they just bring him in when they need him and then they send him back out and I guess in this case they've sent him out to do the spin-off that's coming out next year uh Legends of Tomorrow which is very much the <laughs> Ken Heights Legends of Tomorrow uh from DC I think because they've got Rip Hunter and they've brought the proper uh Black Canary back so it's it's a magical magical time to be a DC television
0: fan. Unless you watch Constantine.
1: (laughs) Yes, in which case, it's also a magical time, but it's a black magic, a dark and horrible magic. And that
0: was frustrating because there were a couple of episodes, uh, specifically anything that Neil Marshall had anything to do with, was like, wow, this would be great! And then the next one was like, this is like Quincy with a magician in it! What happened? (laughs) And I think they never uh, quite got over uh, having to uh, replace a um, major character from the pilot. And uh, I think that screwed up all their scripts and put them behind schedule and led to a lot of daytime shooting. And uh, that's unfortunate that it never quite uh, caught stride. Um, So just before we leave, I'd also like to uh, mention that uh, Silicon Valley and Veep, which are, as we speak uh, still on HBO are both also brilliantly written shows and brilliantly written uh, comedies. Veep is the only, show about American politics that I can watch because it bears a strong resemblance to American politics and (laughs) uh, no other show, whether it's West Wing or House of Cards, uh, seems to bother to observe its subject matter rather than just... uh, Uh, changing it to what it wants American politics to be.
1: I will also uh, mention in the context of things that are ongoing that people should be watching, The Americans continues to go from strength to strength. And this last season, I I don't know if it's the best season of The Americans, but it's one of the best seasons of The Americans. They're all great. I'm not really sure how you would rank them, but it's, it's stayed super strong and they are... Ratcheting up the tension, they're ratcheting up the decision making in a way that I I applaud them for doing. I they're 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 writing it like it's a mini series, not like it's a series, which is great until you get to the edge of the cliff that they've they know that the edge of the cliff is in 1989. So I guess they um uh, they have a plan in that way.
0: And of course, on the other uh, side of the comic book column, uh, we have Daredevil. Uh, up until now, uh, Marvel has slowly been getting better at TV. I actually thought Agent Carter was. Uh, Pretty fun and cool, but uh, Daredevil is definitely in another bracket.
1: Yeah, I think that, uh, when you talked about the, I talked about the casting on The Flash and the casting on Daredevil is, if anything, even better. I don't think that there's a badly cast role on the whole show. Uh, thinking of, about it, I can't think of anyone that was badly cast and a lot of them are just really surprisingly good. Uh, the, Deborah Ann Wall, I think, who played Karen Page is, uh, was terrific uh, and kind of a revelation as to how good she was at. She was at playing all of the sort of various emotional beats that Karen Page goes through over the series. Uh, D'Nofrio's Kingpin, I think. D'Onofrio is so good that he convinces you the Kingpin is actually a serious character, even though he is written as the most apologetic and fumble-fingered super mastermind criminal in the entire Marvel universe. Uh, in the comics or in the show? It, no, in the show. He's, he's constantly apologizing for stuff every time he's on screen. Well, that's,
0: that he has a character <laughs> arc. The villain actually has an arc that resolves at the end of the, the series, so...
1: That's true. He, he Not to spoil it, but at the end, in uh, police custody, he has a, rev- a revelation that one hopes will make him an even Kingpin-ier kingpin or uh, kingpin if he comes back for the next season and that they don't have uh, Daredevil fighting uh, evil ninjas or something.
0: And uh, to get back to the idea of uh, TV structure and the uh, iconic character, here's an instance where it is essentially a wholly serialized show, is that each episode is very distinct from each other episode. They all connect to create character arcs, both for the hero and for the villain. But there's no episode of that show that's a typical episode of Daredevil. There's no, because they're doing it for Netflix and they're not being, uh, there's no sort of uh, network demand to make it -er. normaler. Each one is sort of its own little narrative unit that has its own structure that pays off for what it is. And there's certainly all sorts of Procedural problem solving, which consists of uh, Daredevil uh, getting the crap beaten out of him and then beating the crap out of uh, somebody else, uh, sometimes in a brilliant tracking shot that's a, a wink to true detective and uh, but there's no uh, with each episode that you tune in and you don't know, oh yeah, here's the the beats that they're going to hit each time and they're going to uh, recapitulate that. It really is uh, a procedural iconic hero placed in a serialized, uh, structure that its own, uh, sort of, uh, a TV novel with superheroes in it.
1: Yeah. Um, and one of the interesting things about the writing is as you say, they have a, a, a bunch of different stories. It's like a bunch of single issues of the comic book in a lot of ways that in that way that, um, uh, that Frank Miller did and Warren Ellis does where, the issue is thought of as like a single on an album, so they have a connection, but they don't have to necessarily directly connect. There's a lot of really interesting things that I think that the the very strong credit sequence sort of uh, uh, helps to conceal the, the differentiation in each of those episodes. But, uh, for example, when um, uh, Scott Glenn shows up as Stick... That's the stick episode. There's, it, it's a whole different show than all the other episodes, uh, put together. And, um, I also want to give a shout out to the fight choreography that they found, uh, a new way to show, uh, on screen fighting that, that looks interesting and good. That I think there's a capoeira, uh, component to it as well as the sort of more standardy, um, uh, um, in close uh Muay Thai uh, uh, kickboxing type stuff that is now the the go-to fight choreography for American TV um so i i, I like that they you know thought a little bit outside the box. And of course the notion that it takes him the entire show to realize that if you hit someone with a club instead of your fist, that is why, you know, cavemen invented stick. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I sort of like the, the notion that although he's got this incredible natural talent, that there's still a lot that he has to learn about how to be daredevil correctly.
0: Yeah. And, uh, other than, uh, Tom Hiddleston as uh, Loki, um, what Marvel hasn't been great at is, uh, interesting villains with their own, uh, a point of view and an agenda, and with their own sort of dimension and uh, dramatic poles, as it were. Because so, cool, most of
1: them have been some sort of CGI waste of a good actor instead yeah. of an actual character.
0: And I guess in both cases, the you know what they did was they actually made them conflicted. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Loki is—is uh, is he a loyal son of Asgard or is he a, a trickster? And here you've got—is uh, uh, the kingpin the uh, the builder that he thinks he is, or the bes- the destroyer that he uh, really is? And that. Uh, in order to have a character with uh, that seems three-dimensional, you give them two things that they're pulled toward, and mm-hmm. uh, that's as great an, an example of that as any. And so it actually, you know, pays off the amount of time it spends with the villain and learning all about the villain's plans, which is uh, not necessarily uh, typical of a lot of this sort of storytelling in which uh, in which those scenes are kind of exposition or filler. But there's always uh, something about what he's doing that reflects his uh, increasingly deteriorating uh, mental state through the course of it so that both uh, you know Kingpin and Daredevil through the course of the series are uh, suffering a blade of damage now i guess i the, the one thing I, I wish that the the show will depart from in future is the i is the uh, ethnically identified bad guys where the thing distinguishing each mini faction of villains is their uh, national origins and that's uh, i guess true to the 80s Uh, Comics, but it would be nice to see uh, in future uh, other characters. Uh, defined other than uh, kingpin and defined in ways other than just uh, their national stereotypes.
1: Well, even then, um, there was some development of the the two Russian brothers that uh, were running the Russian mob part of the kingpin's operation. They had some humanity to them about their, you know, they don't ever want to go back to the gulag and they have their sort of brotherly affection. It's not, you know, a, a deep arc, but it's at least more than just I run the Russian mob in New York. Ha ha! Right, uh, type and, and even that
0: is—it's a very you know their hook is a very Russian hook, right? It's yeah. Like uh, we have got Russian mobs. The main thing about them is they're Russian. What do we? How do we dimension them out? Well, let's find a, a Russian detail. So Russian thing, you know, nice to uh, get away from that because of course it's uh, it's lazy storytelling and it's stereotyping as well
1: yeah and i think that the um uh the the uh, uh Madame Gao was her name the the head of the of the chinese mob i think they're saving her up for uh iron fist when he shows up so um one hopes she will get some more uh character development in what is going to wind up being her own show as opposed to being sort of the guest star uh, with, you know, every bit of, you know, oh, she's Asian, so she's more badass than other people, uh, that she was in, in this one. I, th- I think that, uh, we can hope that the, the, the Iron Fist show will at least, um, build that out a little bit. And have and a
0: range of, uh, Chinese of and Japanese characters, so that yes. it's not, uh, just the, Chinese character is distinguished by her chineseness.
1: And the Japanese guy is it, tr- it turns out he's a ninja. <laughs> <But> <laughs> right exactly. I mean, again, you know, you talk you talk about your fidelity to the Frank Miller book. It is absolutely that. <laughs>
0: yes, but... you, you can't get the Japanese ninja mythology out of out of Daredevil, but uh hopefully they'll add and stuff to give that a little bit Mm -hmm. more uh, dimension.
1: Yeah, anyway it's it's a terrific terrific debut. I watched the whole thing you know, pretty much mainlined it while Sheila was out of town, which is the way to do this uh, married friends of mine Um, and so the uh the, the show, I think, uh, really justified everything that, uh, Marvel wanted to do with it and is making me vastly more interested in the rest of those, um, uh, those Netflix original TV shows that they wanted to do, whereas I was going to give a lot of them, I think, a pass, uh, because unlike Daredevil, who I have loved at, from childhood, I never really cared one way or the other about Jessica Jones, for example. Well,
0: it'll be, I think, interesting to watch a show that is not burdened by, it's comic book mythology, just the way that Agent Carter, there's no, you know, that character exists in the comics, but there's no uh, comic book template for that show. And so Mm -hmm. it's it's interesting, you know, there's less baggage that they have to deal with and fewer Easter eggs they need to put in all the corners. And, uh, and I think, again, that was, they were able to give it a bit more uh, coherence. And and that show also had a, a pretty strong through line for its uh, first season, which is more than you could say for Agents of Shield.
1: <laughs> oh, let's 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 just let Agents of Shield sit quietly and not be talked about. This segment it's just too depressing.
0: Okay, well I, I didn't say anything, and this <laughs> is the end of this segment. <laughs> time once again to wend our way up the creaking cobweb stairs to walk past the glowering portrait of madame Blavatsky, maybe even glower back at her and settle down next to the creaking leather chair where sits the consulting occultist who's in a particularly uh renaissancey frame of mind because this time he's here to tell us about a 17th century uh mystic mathematician antiquarian uh in fact uh, It's the height of the Renaissance, and he's the height of a Renaissance man. It's Elias Ashmole, and among other things, Ken, this is your kind of guy because he uh, founded an eponymous library. So uh, with this figure's vast uh, career and many specialties, uh, where do you want to start in giving people who are unfamiliar with Elias Ashmole the 101 on him?
1: First of all, uh he was a I I think at at the bottom, this guy is an antiquary and a collector. He's a guy who wants to have a big library, he wants to have a big uh uh antiquarian collection of coins, of of plants, of whatever. Uh he wants to be sort of at the center of the knowledge universe and this Can be read in an occult fashion and indeed in the 17th century was quite often read in an occult fashion. The Rosicrucian and Baconian dream of the sort of Museum of All Sciences is a fundamental part of the uh, mysticism and the, and the magical sense of that deck of that uh, century. But it can also be read as he was a uh, sort of rising gentleman who wanted to uh, go into this new uh, scientific world and be a big part of it. And that's why he makes sure to translate a bunch of books and have them published. And he has a lot of, uh, you know, interest in helping out other, uh, scholars. And he sort of accidentally, uh, stumbles his way backwards into either co-inventing or uh, perhaps inventing uh, Freemasonry, as well as the Royal Society, which is a pretty um, uh, pretty good gig, I think, uh, for most people.
0: So uh, where do you want to start? Where's the most, uh, of the many Elias Ashmals, uh which is the one that is mo- the most fruitful for occult-flavored uh, uh, fiction and role-playing?
1: Well, I think you begin with the fact that he did spend about a decade uh, really working hard on alchemy, and that's, after his sort of first uh, masonic uh uh recruitment or his first masonic initiation and then he sort of throws himself into alchemy he translates uh alchemical works including one by Arthur D the son of John D into uh english so that more people can study uh, alchemy and then he puts together a a alchemical poetry collection which made more sense in 1652 than now i suspect the theatrum chemicum britannicum and we remember you know a lot of uh a lot of scientific lore was also expressed in poetic uh, form. Uh, Lucretius, for example, uh, his poems is is, is the, the De Natura is a, is a poem about how the universe is set up, and Erasmus Darwin in the next century will write a similar poem about natural history that describes the universe in poetic uh, couplets, and this is part of the notion that. God is creating the world such that it rhymes, such that if you can find out the underlying rhyme scheme, the the laws of nature, you can read the poem or you can read the testament that is the earth. And that is part of that same intellectual um, uh, drive that uh, that is fermenting everybody there in the 17th. Right. But it's
0: a period where not only is the there no distinction yet between what is science and what is magic. Uh, but it's also, there's no distinction necessarily between what is science and what is the humanities, what is the arts. It's all part of one uh, corpus of knowledge and that the idea was that there were, uh, you would try and learn everything because everything was, as you suggest, uh, unified, because it was all created by God.
1: Yeah, or that if it was a, a thing of man, that, that it was a thing of man that was either reflecting uh, the work of God, which is how you could tell it was a correct thing, or was uh, counter to the work of God, in which case you needed to make sure that no one did it, and therefore you still needed to know about it, was the argument of people like um, uh, the uh, Royal Society. Um, and I think that when you start with him as a as a student of alchemy, and he's not a um, an alchemist himself, he doesn't do experiments, he's Again, he's a guy who gathers up alchemical uh texts and then provides them to other scholars and also uh builds up an alchemical collection of um of works and of trinkets and whatnot. And this is at the same time he's building up one of the greatest botany collections in England. So if you've got a a swamp thing uh going on or or 17th century biotech, which sounds like kind of a cool setup already, um he would be the guy who's building the mandrake person in the in the basement or is Buying the Mandrake person from the guy who built the Mandrake person but ran out of money and can't afford it anymore. And so he's Right,
0: because if we're gonna fictionalize him, we're gonna take out the part where he was just writing about this stuff and not doing experiments. We're gonna make sure that he just wasn't writing about his experiments.
1: I kind of like the idea that he's sort of the, the Moriarty of this stuff, that he knows enough about alchemy to know he doesn't want to do it in his house <laughs> where all of his library well, what can what be set off. <laughs> he he's well the mandrake guy's that that's a whole different thing. You can you can, probably can't damage a book building a mandrake guy. But he's got, um, uh, or he builds it in the, green- in the greenhouse. Maybe that's where he builds it. But he's got right. all manner of th- And he's, a, as an antiquary, he's all, all digging into burial mounds or whatever else. And so he's got, he, he's sort of there as a guy you can plug into whatever you want to do with the 17th century. And again, like I say, since he kind of, you know, starts masonry in, uh, 1646, uh, probably on the basis of, uh, Scottish officers in the royal army. Um, and then again in 1682, uh, so 40 years later, there's some sort of weird proto Masonic, uh, is it a conspiracy? Is it a magical society? Is it a bunch of guys who agree that they should have better property because they're middle class, for God's sake, just like regular Masonry is now? Um, it could be all of those things. Again, this, as you say, there's no real, uh, bright line between magic and science. There's no real bright line between magic and social climbing either.
0: Now, although uh, later on, uh, various monarchs uh, try and stamp out masonry as a threat to uh, their royal selves. uh, Ashmole himself was a uh, royalist during the English civil war and his uh, sort of magical antiquarian career was sidetracked when Charles II uh, uh, came back during the restoration because he, Uh, suddenly found himself getting a lot of lucrative public posts. Uh, Is there uh, ways that we can... Let's say that uh, we're playing a 17th century uh, game and Elias Ashmole is uh, the guy who gives us missions to go on uh, or uh, one of the guys who gives us missions. What sort of missions is he going to send us on and how are they going to relate to... uh, the, uh, political conflicts of that
1: era. Well, in the, um, in the late 17th, you've got a couple of problems. You've got people who are trying to, uh, uh, rebel against uh, King Charles. You've got the problems with France. Uh, you've got sort of a, a lot of, you know, dissent. It's just after the civil war has ended the other way. And now it's ending this way. Charles II was actually pretty good at not Making a whole ton of enemies. He didn't execute anyone. He didn't really have to. Um, but you're going to be going after hardcore Puritans, maybe. You're going to be going after, um, uh, problematic foreigners and, uh, sort of, uh, me- members of the estates that, uh, don't approve of, of Charles's reign. There's, um, I believe the Duke of Monmouth rebels against, uh, King James, but the Monmouth rebellion sort of, begins to burble around at the notion that Charles has a bastard son somewhere so maybe Charles does have a bastard son and his bastard son like most bastard sons of monarchs wants to alter the the uh, the approved monarchy situation and um uh and maybe that's your your bad guy but the other thing it could just be fairies right it could be the protestant magic of of John Dee that you're hunting down because John Dee of course would be um very much a uh he he was he was Tudor not Stuart and the religious complexion of of uh, the restoration probably would set a more protestant uh, magician uh on edge uh, maybe you've got you know the the old Walsingham network that has gone to ground that very much was a uh, uh, puritan and um anti-catholic they might be a problem and of course you've got uh as i mentioned previously the french and this is the same period you've got that um uh, uh f- french ring of satanists around uh, madame de montespan that we talked about many many segments ago so those could be bad guys
0: so we uh, touched on the ashmolean uh, library uh, how did it come to be and what is it
1: today uh today it is uh, basically the library at oxford university um he is uh he he gets it by marrying a rich uh, uh widow and <laughs> She doesn't like him, but she can't get divorced. Ha-ha. Welcome to the 17th century. And so he basically takes her money and then all the money that, as you say, Charles II starts to provide him from his um, uh, political sinecures and uses them to buy lots and lots and lots of books and lots and lots and lots of book collections. And he, as I as I imply, he sort of wants to be the center of this knowledge. But at the time of his death, uh, it winds up in Oxford as opposed to you know, being scattered around among his heirs because uh the university basically, you know, sucks up to him when it when the when the sucking is good and he decides to keep his collection together. Because I again I suspect the way that he's bought all these other collections is, you know, someone's son has sold off all their manuscripts, and he's like, no son of mine's gonna sell off any manuscripts. And that's where it winds up in the, in the Bodleian, uh, library at Oxford.
0: So, um, another question that comes to mind about Ashmole is, uh, what was up with the spiders he hung around his neck?
1: Those were the cure for his egg, which is very much like, I guess, the banana that keeps the tigers out. But since that's such an obviously, um, uh, uh surface story, I think if he's hanging spiders around his neck, they have to have a more magical um, uh, 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 component, or at the very least, they symbolize his role as this sort of uh, Napoleon, this uh, Moriarty sitting in the middle of the spider web of of magic and conspiracy, and that the spiders maybe are like his Huguen and Munin, and they crawl around and bring him information or leads on coin collections, or they go and find a guy who's got a great coin collection who suddenly dies of a spider bite, who can tell? I think that there's an awful lot. Once you've got a guy with three, uh, spiders that hang around his neck, there's no shortage of trouble he can get up to.
0: Take that, arachnophobes. So today, in a, um, modern day occult story, if you're headed there for information and you're going to be touched by the uh, magical influence of, uh, Elias Ashmole, what does that entail? Uh,
1: in a modern day game, you're going to be looking at the sort of the true masons that he founded with, uh, magic and mandrakes back in the day. Um, you're going to be dealing maybe with, uh, it, it, it might kind of be fun, depending on your on your group. I suspect uh, to have since he was pro Stuart, and the Stuarts became the Jacobites, became the guys that rebelled against the Hanoverians later on. That there is a Stuart magical conspiracy that still goes down. I think there's probably still a Stuart pretender somewhere in Europe uh, to the throne, and you. Can because the the monarchy is now beginning to totter on its on its ankles in Britain, uh, the the killing of Princess Diana maybe is is down to these Stuarts um, as a way of of uh, knocking out a, a a prop to the monarchy. All the scandals and whatnot turn out to be Mandrake women who are putting themselves in the way of randy royals and such like that. Uh, Prince Charles being driven mad by a lengthy exposure to agriculture is again, botanical magic done by these Ashmolean, uh, Jacobites. And the goal is to replace the monarchy with a sort of, and I guess you'd sort of paint it as a monarchic version of the antichrist. You know, he's the guy who's going to make himself the true King of Britain. And he comes out and he's like, yay, I'm going to make Britain great again on, on no money because I have alchemy, et cetera, or whatever. And people are, you know saying why can't we get rid of these horse-faced germans and get some proper scots to be our our kings again maybe this is the how we will keep scotland in the union is is by finding a proper stuart to to rule the the land again and your uh modern day player characters can either be sort of cynical um, uh, SIS or MI5 type guys who just have been putting down Jacobite threats since the 1740s, and this is the latest one, or they can be sort of innocents drawn into the conspiracy just because they were studying the wrong book at Oxford and discovered that there was more to this story than they were being told.
0: And finally, uh, if I'm a, a modern-day uh, magician in a contemporary occult game and my magic is based on the theatrum chemicum, Britannicum what crunchy bits do i get
1: uh you get um <laughs> i think first of all your uh, your magic all has to be poetic magic um because it is poetic works um as i me- as i mentioned previously uh you, you you i think one of the other things that you can do with your theatricum chemicum britannicum magic is that your magic has to tell a story right all of your rituals have to present either like a story and to make it more accessible than 17th century uh, alchemical symbology. You can say that you know it has to be part of a of a Mother Goose fairy tale or a nursery rhyme or something. That those are the true poet poetic fragments of the alchemical lore. Or if you've got uh, someone who's a really big um, uh, Shakespeare fan, they have to be Shakespeare uh, bits, or they have to be something out of the Bible. But your magical ritual to make it work has to sort of represent the story and the way that you can. Uh, make that happen is by the sort of matching rhymes and quatrains from the Theatrum Chemicum. And by bringing those into existence, you create a condition in the real world.
0: Uh, so the uh, power of your fireball depends on how good your sonnet is.
1: Exactly. And whether or not uh, you have set up a story that ends with a fire. And so you're like, Oh, I, I um, I have to make sure that this, that this ritual ends with a dramatic fire as opposed to with a flood because if, it's, if I'm accidentally doing a Noah ritual, I've screwed myself but I have to find someone who gets burned up. Uh, I, this has to be a Joan of Arc ritual or something.
0: Well, I think that uh, leaves a lot for our uh, potential players of Ashmolean magic to chew upon and therefore we can declare another podcast poetically concluded. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors.
1: Atlas Games, Dork Tower, Pro Fantasy Software,
0: and Pell Press.
1: Music, as always, is by James Semple.
0: Keep us on the path of lawful good by hitting the donate button at Ken
1: RobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or alchemical treatise by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site.
0: On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height.
1: And he's at Robin D. Laws.
0: See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.